Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. For this edition, we're highlighting keynote remarks made by the Reverend Dr. Erwin Lutzer during the Illinois Family Institute's 2021 Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet. Dr. Lutzer is pastor emeritus of Moody Church in Chicago and a renowned Christian broadcaster. He's also authored several must-read books, including When a Nation Forgets God, Hitler's Cross, and The Church in Babylon. And now insights from his book, we will not be silenced, and a call to live out our Christ-centered convictions against a growing tide of hostility. What a marvelous opportunity is for me to speak to you tonight and to be able to support this fine ministry. My sermon title is going to be, We Will Not Be Silenced, or you could title it differently and call it, We Will Not Bow. Normally, I don't begin with other people's prayers, but I'd like to read a prayer that is 550 years old, written by none other than Sir Francis Drake, who was a man, of course, who of the seas. He was an explorer, so there are nautical references to this prayer. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore, Disturb us, Lord, when the, with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. We're losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizon of our hopes and to push us into the future with strength, courage, hope, and love. We ask this in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. Amen. The story comes to us from Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag. He says, in 1937, Stalin gave a speech and then Solzhenitsyn tells us what happened. They stood up to applaud. The applause went on and on, six minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes. They were done for, their goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now until they almost collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, they could cheat a little bit, clap a little less frequently, a little less vigorously. Nine minutes, 10 minutes, insanity. To the last man with make-believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope, the district leaders were just going to go on and on, applauding until they basically fell where they stood. At last, after 11 minutes of non-stop clapping, the director of a paper factory finally decided enough was enough. He stopped clapping and sat down, a miracle to everyone. To everyone's surprise, they all stopped. And of course, they were very glad to stop, and they sat down. That same night, the director of the paper factory was arrested and sent to prison for 10 years. Authorities came up with some official reason for his sentencing, but during his interrogation, he was told, 
don't ever be the first to stop clapping. Solzhenitsyn goes on to say, how does freedom die? With thunderous applause when everybody is clapping. The Soviet Union perfected the art of what we could call the art of cultural demonization and collective demonization. Collective demonization was the idea that everybody was to get on board. For example, if the government called someone a dissenter, everyone wrote letters and chimed in even if they didn't know the person because they wanted to make sure that they were on the right side. And so what they did is they collectively agreed with their government. And of course, as was mentioned, I've also written a book on Nazi Germany. The same thing was true in the Nazis, the churches. They had swastikas on their doors because they were saying, when you come for the Christians, don't come for us because we are on your side. We are clapping. This past summer, it was my privilege to speak every morning to the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, at their annual meeting. And they are the attorneys that are fighting our battles, that are trying to maintain our freedoms. And the things that we learned were overwhelming. Did you know that there's a school of the Ozarks and ADF has filed a lawsuit against the federal government because the federal government is saying this, that if your students take Pell Grants, you have to accept trans students into your dormitories because after all, they need equal rights. For example, let's suppose you have a daughter, you send her to this Christian school, and she's assigned a roommate who was born a boy but now identifies as a girl and you can do nothing about it because we need this glorious word called equality. So a lawsuit is being filed against the federal government. I want to say in passing that Christians sometimes say that politics isn't important. It is not all important. The gospel is all important. But let me tell you something, that politics has huge implications. And that's why I'm so glad for the many of you who stood, who are involved in government or you are running, we should pray you all the way through to the finish line. So while we were there in Orlando, we met uh, Baronel Sutzman, 76-year-old grandmother, she was the one who was the owner of Arlene's uh, flower shop in Washington State, and for 10 years she supported Rob Ingersoll. Whenever he came in, she made whatever flower arrangement he wanted. But when he asked if she would make a flower arrangement for a same-sex wedding, she said, that is a bridge too far. And so the state of Washington sued her, the ACLU, of course, sued her. It's very interesting. I wish this was on video, but when she walked into the room for her deposition, here you have all these attorneys sitting around the table. What does she do? She goes over and she gives Rob Ingersoll a hug. She was told later, generally in a court case, you don't necessarily hug the person who is suing you, who intends to destroy you. But this woman was filled with a love of Christ, and that's about all that she can do is love. But she lost her case, and it was appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States this past spring, our supposedly conservative Supreme Court, and it was turned down. So she stands to lose everything, everything. And as she said, at the age of 76, I can't start over again because 
She wasn't seen clapping, thank you very much, and on and on it goes. I don't want to get too controversial here, but I do want to say a word about COVID. It is possible, and I think that many of you take this position, which I take, that you can be pro-vaccine, but strongly opposed to universal mandates. Strongly opposed. Now, when it comes to COVID, I actually am very cautious because after all, I'm 80 and I'm in the high-risk group, so I'm not gonna be autographing books afterwards. I was gonna mention that uh, earlier at the beginning, and uh, some of us are somewhat cautious, but the simple point is this, that what comes next? The idea that children now universally must be vaccinated, is that where we're going? There's no end to where this will end, and I do not see a good ending in sight. When you have that kind of control, and then to learn that here in Illinois, the House voted to take away the right of conscience for people regarding their health issues and health concerns and decisions. Where is that going to lead? Everybody needs to get clapping, we are told. And unfortunately, many people are clapping. And as Solzhenitsyn says, it dies, that is to say, freedom dies with thunderous applause. Now, the whole idea of collective demonization is not something that just was invented recently. Collective demonization has been around for many centuries, and that's why in the Bible, and I know you probably don't have your Bibles with you. I know that you brought your cell phones, your computers, your jackhammers, whatever else it is that you have. <laughs> Whenever I'm preaching to a crowd, though, usually in a church, because I do this for the, all those who are under 40, I actually hold up a Bible and say, this is a Bible. Just to remind them what a Bible is, some of you older people will recognize it as a Bible. There is a chapter in the third chapter of the book of Daniel that has a very interesting story, and I'm going to summarize it for you because, after all, you know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge image. He takes them all to the plain of Dura, and he takes all the people to this huge plain, and he says, I want you, when the music begins, you fall down and you worship. Well, you could almost imagine Thousands and thousands of people in this big plain where the image was placed up. And when the music began, everybody bowed. But there were three who didn't. They have been known in history as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, affectionately known as shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. <laughs> and they just would not bow. And somebody tattled on them. They went to Nebuchadnezzar. He probably didn't see it himself, but they said, you know, there are three Jews out there. They're not bowing. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to say to them, you know, I'm, very, I'm a really nice guy. Now, it's true that my armies took Jewish babies and threw them against the wall when we captured Jerusalem, but basically I'm nice. And remember this, Nebuchadnezzar knew these guys. They are mentioned in the first chapter of Genesis, be, excuse me, of Daniel, because what happened is when the Jews went to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar took some of the choice, smart, wise, young Jewish men as advisors, and they were his advisors. So he said, I want to be very kind to you, and let's have a redo. 
Let's, let's add this. You may have not been looking at your cell phones. You didn't get the emails. You know, maybe the communication was a little mixed up. I'm willing to do this again for you. What we're going to do is this. When the music begins, you bow, and if not, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, I know that you perhaps don't have your Bibles with you, but you can look this up later. The three said this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. He says, let's not get into huge discussions of, you know, can we meet, reach a compromise or whatever. And then they say, we believe, O God, that our God is able to deliver us. And what they have done is they had three convictions that enable them to not bow. Three convictions that we have to instill into our children. Three convictions that are very important. The first was they believed in the power of God. If you read verse 16, they say, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Now that's basic theology. If you don't believe that God is a sovereign God who can do the impossible, you're probably not a Christian. And so what they said is, um, you know, we, we know that our God is going to deliver us, and we even believe that he will, O king. So they believed in the power of God. But now we come across one of the greatest statements of faith in all the Bible. They go on to say, but if not, let it be known unto you, O king, we will not bow. Now... Now, that is such a great statement of faith because, you know, when they said, we believe God is going to deliver us, they didn't have absolute certainty. But they said, whether he does or not, we will not surrender. Now, think of Dunkirk. The Allies are fighting there along the coast of France, and uh, the leader of the Allies in Dunkirk sends a telegram to England with three words. Just three words. But if not. But in those days, England still had what we could call a Christian consensus, and everybody would have understood. This is Daniel chapter 3, verse 18. What they were saying is, we are being surrounded by the Nazis, and we'd like to be delivered by God, but if not, we will not surrender. Just know this, we will not bow. Let me ask you something. Are you comfortable with the providence of God, with the unpredictability of God? It's one thing to believe in the power of God, but what about the providence of God? Are you comfortable with the fact that God oftentimes is unpredictable? Acts chapter 12, we read the story that Herod brings forth James and has his head cut off. He is killed with a sword. Peter, his execution is to be the next day, and Peter is sleeping. I've often wondered, why in the world is Peter sleeping if he's going to be killed the next day and knows it and the only reason I can think of is he wanted to arrive in heaven rested so Peter is sleeping and while he's sleeping an angel touches him and said come with me and the doors open and there's deliverance that's the way God is you know I mean there's one person he delivers and there's another he doesn't we believe oh God that you are able to deliver this young woman from cancer because she and she is needed by her children and by her husband. We believe that, oh God. But if not, we will not swerve in our commitment to you. Did you know that God does not have to deliver us to be faithful to his promises? 
That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, whether it's death or sword, nakedness, total destitution, and starvation. It does not separate us from the love of God. God does not even have to deliver us from COVID to be faithful to his promises. But it's the unpredictability of God that you and I need to just be able to surrender to him and say, God, we don't know the future, but the future is in your hands. So they believed, first of all, in the power of God. They believed in what we could call the providence of God. Let God do as he wills. But they also believed in the presence of God. They knew that whether they lived or died, God would be there for them. And, you know, as I mentioned, if they had bowed, they'd have never had the experience of being thrown into the fiery furnace and the fourth man who is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, walking among them. And they ended up becoming the asbestos kids because no matter how hot the fire was, they just would not burn. <laughs> what an experience they'd have missed if they had bowed. The Reverend Dr. Erwin Lutzer, the keynote speaker during the Illinois Family Institute's 2021 Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet. More of his remarks after this. Science shouldn't become political. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stonestreet with a point. Recently, the University of Washington published research into whether hormones and puberty blockers improve the mental health of kids with gender dysphoria. According to the PR team for the university, pretty much every media outlet that covered the study and the study's authors themselves, the answer was yes, except it wasn't. The numbers actually revealed no difference between kids' mental health before taking hormones and after a year of treatment. At both points, kids were suffering from dramatic mental health problems. If anything, the study suggested that kids who did not start taking the medications got slightly worse. The university refused to officially respond when an independent journalist challenged their conclusion, though the study's authors admitted their findings had been misrepresented. Internal emails showed the university's communications team wasn't concerned that the story was not accurate. They liked that it was popular. Among the casualties of the politicizing of scientific research is public trust in our institutions. The most vulnerable casualties, however, are the kids. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. It's an evening you don't want to miss. The Illinois Family Institute's Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet with actors and filmmakers Sam and Kevin Sorbo. Join them Friday night, October 28th at the Carlisle in Lombard. Register at IllinoisFamily.org. People are standing up and saying enough is enough. I'll just say that people are looking for truth. The Sorbos are outspoken Christian conservatives in liberal Hollywood. They're known for the Hercules TV series and the documentary film Leaders for Life. You need bravery. But I'm still learning. I'm still learning how to be bold, right? Sure, we all are. But we all need to learn how to be bold. Kevin and Sam Sorbo and the IFI Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet, Friday night, October 28th. Register at IllinoisFamily.org or call 708-781-9328, IllinoisFamily.org. Hail and well met. I'm Alyssa. I'm Eliana. I'm Kenna. And I'm Jenna. We are four females who, by discussing and dismantling subjects prevalent in the Western culture, want to make truth self-evident once again. 
We want to make current cultural events and worldview issues relatable to our peers and point all those listening to the gospel and what the Bible says. We are available on any platform you find a podcast. So please leave us a review, follow us on all the social medias, and please give us a listen. Self-evident, dedicated to speaking truths that were once self-evident and doing so in love. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight for this edition. Highlights from Dr. Erwin Lutzer's keynote address at the 2021 Illinois Family Institute Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet. During this segment, Dr. Lutzer encourages Christians to live beyond fear and boldly accept the increasingly difficult challenges of living courageously for Christ in today's culture. Now, you and I must recognize that there are times when we do not see God, but we don't have to see him. Martin Luther asked the question, what does the believer do when you look around and have no reason to believe that God is on your side? Luther says, the Christian believes God's bare word. That's how come we know God is on our side. The night before the Diet of Orms, Luther was in such distress unable to sleep and crying out, oh God, where are you? He had no sense of God's presence. And yet, based on the word, the next day he made that famous statement which every Christian parent should have taught their children. My conscience is taken captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant, so help me God. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise in all of history. What I'd like to do is to give you four or five implications for America, for our family. Number one, we can expect persecution to continue and to get worse. Three weeks ago, I was at the Billy Graham Cove and I gave four lectures on suffering for Christ. I thought I needed to do that because we as Americans aren't used to that. We always think that we're gonna have these freedoms that we grew up with. And now that these freedoms are fading away, we need to rethink that. For example, the average American thinks that persecution is something very terrible. Well, in many respects it is. We think it's a curse. But Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Great shall be your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Those of you who are in politics, you know that the whole system today is vilify, 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 where everybody is vilified today. And you're going to have to take a lot of heat, but blessed are you if you're representing Jesus well. But we're going to have to get used to the fact that persecution is around. It's not only being put to death for martyrs, though I spoke about that too. It's being deplatformed. It's being taken off the internet. I know ministries where they used to be on TV, they have now been taken down. If you don't say the right thing, you have, of course, the cancel culture where we are being marginalized. We have to get used to that and recognize that attacks like this will come. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that is to try you. Don't be so shocked. One of the things we have to do is to study church history and find out that persecution has always been a part of the church. In fact, there was a time when it was believed that if you weren't being persecuted, you were probably not the right true church. 
So that's the first lesson. Number two, we must learn to stand alone. If I were Billy Graham, I'd say alone, okay? We must learn to stand alone. Wait a moment. There were 10,000 Jews that went from, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Were they all bowing? Probably most of them. Maybe they would be like some of us who would say, Lord, you know that in my heart I'm standing up, but I have a family to feed and so forth, and so I'm going to bow. And we have to be sympathetic with that. The other day somebody asked me whether Christians have often buckled under persecution, and it's happened. Only three, yeah, only three, but they stood alone. Now there was three of them, which was helpful. What is the big challenge that your kids have if you send them to college today? They are going to experience a tsunami of cultural issues, and they are not going to be talked out of their faith, but they are going to be mocked out of their faith. And therefore, what we have to do is to train them to accept that kind of mocking and say, when we are shouted at, we will not shout back, but on the other hand, we will speak, and we will speak with confidence, and we will stand our ground, and we will continue to serve the Lord. Years ago in Canada, we learned a little song. I don't know if it ever made it south of the border here, but uh, I've decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. We never remember those who went along with the culture. Our heroes are actually people who stood against the culture, even if they stood alone. It's the Martin Luthers. It's the Bonhoeffers. You remember the only two people who said that they could go into the land were Caleb and Joshua. All of the other names are listed. We don't remember those guys. We only remember the people who stood alone. And your kids and mine and my grandchildren, we have to learn to stand alone. Third, we must fear God more than we fear the fire. We must fear God more than we fear the fire. By the way, I preached about this at the Cove. Did you know that when Christians, even when they are thrown into the hands of the devil, are still in the hands of God. Isn't that wonderful? And the Bible says that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hands. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. You have the hand of the Father. And you have the hand of the Son. But the point is simply this. There have been Christians in history who have feared God more than they have feared the fire. And you and I need to understand that. And we need to take suffering for Jesus Christ as a badge of honor. There's another lesson, and you politicians, the attorneys where I was speaking, loved this. It is not necessary for you to win in this life in order for you to win in the life to come. There are legal cases that are lost in this life that should be won, but it's okay, just be faithful. And when you think about the persecution of Christians, many of them have lost in this life, but they have won in the life to come. Niemöller, you know, once, because he confronted Hitler in a very direct way, was criticized by people, and they say, you know, he should have never spoken to him that way, yada, yada, yada. I'm not there to judge whether he did the right thing or not, but then somebody said, well, what do you think this makes the church look like in Germany? 
And Niemöller said, I don't really care what the church looks like here on earth. I worry about what the church looks like in heaven. You don't have to win in this life in order to win in the next, if we are faithful. There's another lesson, and that is this. It's the power of an example and a witness. Now, I'm going to shock you. I believe that this evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to be in heaven. You say, that's absolutely ridiculous. Why? He ends up believing in the true God. He sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sees their witness. He already then confesses that God, the Lord Jehovah, is the true God. And then God puts him out with the animals for seven months. And then he comes back and he finally understands what the church has to understand today. And that is the sovereignty of God. God did not abandon his throne after the last election, if I might put it more directly. (laughs) But rather, he says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. Sanity is understanding who you are and understanding who God is. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and whose kingdom is from one generation to another, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's the God in which I believe. I trust that he's the God in which you believe as well. Nebuchadnezzar confessing Jehovah as the right God. The other day as I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, I was reminded of a story where in the book of Esther, there was a man by the name of Haman who was promoted by the king. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, it was Ahasuerus. He was promoted and the king said, I'm making you next to me over the whole realm. Whenever Haman came into the castle, the Bible says expressly, everybody bowed. But there was one stubborn Jew by the name of Mordecai who would not bow. Now, if Mordecai had lived in our age, he could have gone to the ACLU and said, look, I just want you to know that even though everybody's bowing, there's one that isn't bowing, and that is a threat to my whole sense of identity and self-worth. I'm going through a very difficult time here. I mean, there are a dozen different flower shops, you know, that would be willing to make a same-sex arrangement, but there's one that won't, and, and that is a threat to my personhood. Anyway, he's deeply troubled by the fact that this Mordecai would not bow. It says that Haman was angry. So he goes into the king and he says, let's invent the cancel culture. The ultimate cancel culture is to kill all the Jews. Let's kill all of them. And of course, Mordecai, being a Jew, he will die. Mordecai hears about this decree, and he goes to Esther. Either she was his niece or his cousin. I don't think scholars are sure. But he helped her get into the palace and into the harem of the king. And he says, Esther, you have to go see the king. And she says, I can't. I can't. He tells her about the decree and says, there's no way I can do this because the king has a law, and the law is this, that if you go in without being invited, he's going to cut your head off. Mordecai, of course, knows about this, and he says to Esther, Esther, do you think you're going to survive there in the palace? 
He says, if this decree goes through, you're going to die too. You have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And to Esther's everlasting credit, what did she say? It's the only Hebrew I remember from Hebrew class. Avati, avati. If I perish, I perish. And she goes in and she connects with the king and the king reverses the decree and after that things went very bad for Haman. But the point is, Mordecai said, life or death, I will not bow. May that be true of us as believers in this world that has lost its way even as things begin to cave in, in education, in the culture, in politics. We will not bow. Let's pray. Father, to be very honest with you, we are frightened because this is new territory for us. We've not had to stand against the vilification of social media, the criticism, the critical race theory, and other ideas that are pressing upon us. Father, we've not been this way before. Would you help us, help these politicians, help this wonderful ministry of Illinois Family Institute amidst all the pressures that come from Springfield and that come from the culture. Lord, we just cry to you like the king in the Old Testament when he cried to you, Jehoshaphat, and said, Lord, there's an army coming against us and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Help all these dear people to ask a simple question, what does obedience look like going forward for me and may we all determine we will not bow in jesus name amen the reverend dr erwin lutzer the keynote speaker at the 2021 illinois family institute faith family and freedom banquet now, be sure to join Kevin and Sam Sorbo October 28th for IFI's 2022 banquet. This acting couple is true to their faith in Christ and are outspoken conservatives in liberal Hollywood. To register, click events at IllinoisFamily.org, IllinoisFamily.org, or call IFI 708-781-9328. We would love to see you there. Also, with the general election season nearing, you may want to click the voter registration tab on the IFI homepage. There's valuable information there about registering the vote for this very important election. Please support the work of the Illinois Family Institute. All donations are tax deductible. And tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.